so turn to Joshua chapter 8 if you're not already there. Um, grab a Bible because we'll, we'll, you'll need it as we look at different verses. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide there in front of you, it's page number 183. And as you're turning there, let me also uh, encourage you to come out to the Unite Night next week. Um, we'll, as, uh, as Matt mentioned, we'll have a meal, but sign up for, for that. Uh, it'll be a, a prayer theme focus. We'll sing some songs about that. We'll hear uh, some scripture uh, challenge and spend a little bit of time in prayer, but you'll hear some readings from some of our teens and youth. Um, and so uh, let me just encourage you to come out to that time of fellowship and be encouraged uh, in, in your prayer life and hopefully our prayer life as a church body. So before we get into this, and I'm not going to, thank you Roger for reading that, uh, I'm not going to read through the whole thing and we'll just, we'll, we'll comment along the way and read verses uh, as we need to, but before we do that, let me, let me pray for us. God, as we come to you, um, we, we echo the words of the last song we sang, hallelujah, what a savior, what a savior we have in Jesus Christ who willingly gave his life for us on the cross and uh, now lives and has risen again uh, as the conquering king. And really that has been our theme through this book of Joshua, faith that conquers is a faith in Christ because he has provided the victory. And, and so we praise you, Jesus, for that victory that you have secured for us. We desire to rest in that and to walk in light of that. And even today, as we will hear that our obedience must be first grounded in that reality, uh, we pray for uh, the prayers and Adam as he preaches and ministers there at Christ Church. And we just ask that you would use him to encourage the body there. Um, thank you for their heart, for this uh, county and this community and reaching people with the gospel. And um, we know that, uh, Father, as we, we think about that, we're, we, we pray for churches around this area because we're not uh, competing uh, for the kingdom, but this is your kingdom that is being built. And uh, Lord, we know that uh, you have a role and a place for each of these local churches that, that are in our area, uh, that we would work together and that we would see the gospel go out uh, to everyone, that they would have multiple opportunities to hear that good news and to respond in faith. We pray for uh, uh, Laura and Kathy today and others that are helping and working and teaching in our kids' uh, church. Use the word as it, as it goes out there and help our kids to understand with hearts of faith at a very young age. Um, and, and again, Father, we do pray for those that are sick. Uh, a lot of sickness been going around, but we ask that you would bring healing, that you would bring them back with us as soon as possible. In Jesus' name, amen. One other thing that I'll mention before we jump in here, uh, we just want to praise the Lord at our last member meeting, that, that actually that Sunday, uh, our, our tech unit called a Kramer unit, which I had never heard that word until the member meeting, uh, went out and we were looking at maybe a multi-thousand dollar replacement needed to, to purchase that. Well, in the process of uh, talking to a tech guy in the area, um, about some other things that we, we wanted to look at, maybe upgrading and things. Uh, he happened to bring uh, the exact same Kramer unit that, that, we, that went out on ours and uh, said, hey, this is just a gift from, from our church to yours. Uh, we knew that you needed that. So anyway, the back screen is up, which is a huge help to the, the music team, but the Lord um, provided uh, in an unexpected way. So praise the Lord for that. All right, Joshua chapter 8. Um, you know, in our own walks with the Lord, we, we will struggle in sin. We will fall in sin. And when we sin, we need to repent. We must repent. Uh, and when we do, God promises to forgive. But as we started out last week, it can be hard sometimes to move forward in our Christian walk. Israel, perhaps, it was hard to move on from the sin of Achan. But what we started to get into last week and we'll continue in is that per 
repentance provides a reset. It wipes the slate clean from our sin. Our sin is forgiven, but it's not a resetting back to like the beginning of the relationship. When, when we experience godly repentance, it provides a reset. Our sin is wiped, but it's a reset forward. And last week we looked at how repentance provides a reset forward in our relationship with God, that the relational communication with God in verses 1 to 2 is back open, and we saw God's words of comfort and his words of victory and his words of grace to the people. And now we move forward, and Joshua is now to communicate these words and and this plan to the people, and they must obey. And so repentance now, we're going to look at this week, provides a reset forward. Uh, repentance provides a reset forward. Am I, uh, let's see here, there we go, in our obedience to God. After communication starts up again, there's that lingering question, will I obey God? That's a future. Will I obey and trust him in the commands that he is going to give me next? And that's really the question as we come into verse number three. And it's an important question because obedience is an outworking of true repentance. Where there is no obedience, there has not been repentance. We can have sorrow, we can have regret over sin. We can feel guilty over sin and not repent. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul tells us this very thing when he talks about there is a godly sorrow that leads to that produces repentance before God and there's a worldly sorrow that does not repent and leads to death there has been no change of life there is no obedience that follows the remorse last week we defined repentance as having a a change of mind. It is a turning around 180 degrees. But when we repent, it's not that we just turn around and we just stand there. No, we have to move forward and begin to follow God once again in obedience. There's action that comes. And so here's a gospel truth that is so important to understand. Last week we talked about a restored relationship and a restored relationship must happen before true repentance can take place. That order is so important because we trust and believe in what Jesus has done for us at the cross that we are forgiven based on faith in him alone. And it's then out of that understanding that we obey. It's out of that restored relationship that we walk in obedience because obedience alone doesn't restore our relationship with God. We don't obey to be forgiven. We obey because we are forgiven. And boy, obedience is so much sweeter when it's done knowing that you are accepted rather hoping that you'll be accepted. Jonathan Edwards Congregationalist pastor in the 1700s, he writes this Our obedience should be free and ingenuous, should be the free and ingenuous, that is, innocent obedience of children, not the forced obedience of slaves or the mercenary obedience of hirelings. Do you understand what he's saying? Our obedience to God should flow from from knowing that we have a good father who loves us and cares for us and has brought us into a relationship with him and accepts us, not because of the things that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And if we are trusting in Jesus, then those things that he has done, his obedience is seen by God as if I had done them. And we are accepted And so we delightfully obey him as a child would his father. This morning, what we really want to look at and what that leads us to is that true repentance motivates us to confidently obey God in all that he commands. Why? Because we're we're walking by faith in a relationship with God. But true obedience motivates us to confidently obey God in all that he commands. And so we're going to look at 
this question, how are we motivated to confident obedience? And I want to drill down on four motivations in this passage that will give us confident obedience to what God has commanded. Number one, we are motivated to confident obedience to God because of God's sovereign plan. Sorry, God's sovereign plan. Let's look at verses 3 to 8 here for just a moment. I'm going to read these verses, but again, I'm not going to read all of these verses again. But verses 3 to 8, So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city from the for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So let's separate the forest from the trees for a moment. Okay, We're going to zoom out. Now, we're here in chapter 8, but let's Let's just kind of zoom out and see. remember the context. God has already promised the entire land to the people of Israel, which goes back to Abraham in Genesis, and then is reaffirmed to Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. Then it's reaffirmed to Moses and the people of Israel. Then at the beginning of Joshua chapter 1, it's reaffirmed to Joshua and the people once again that I'm going to give you this whole land. Now in between Moses and Joshua, the people wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And that was because of their sin. But here, when we come to Joshua, you have a new leader leading a new generation of Israelites into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan. They conquered Jericho by God's power. And now you come to this battle of Ai, which they've already failed once. And they find out it was because of their sin and they repent of that sin and here is chapter 8. You have what feels like this big unknown. Can we get victory now at Ai? Can God deliver on this victory? And this is the, this is the tree that's confronting the people. You have this whole forest, but here's the tree that's confronting the people that's right in front of them. And God's people do need to step back and see the big picture, the sovereign plan of God to be reminded of that to remember that. Now it's easy to look from our vantage point and say, well, just obey and do what he says because it's all going to work out for good. Well, we already know the end of the story. But they didn't know the end of the story. They're hearing these words of Joshua, here's the battle plan, and they need to really believe in God's sovereign big picture plan that it's unfold, that, that's been unfolding. Because when you just suffered a defeat and people have died and you've had to put to death one of your own. That, that's hard to maybe begin to have confidence. It can be hard to not let that tree in front of you capture all of your attention. Boy, how true is that in our Christian lives? We get so focused on that problem that's right in front of us, that struggle, that issue and how to overcome it, that we don't step back and see what God has done, what he has promised to do for you. With repentance comes a confidence, a renewed trust in God and his ways. I, I hope as we think about that, our understanding of repentance deepens, that it's not just an acknowledgement of sin, and a need to correct this, like, this issue in my life. I need to stop doing that. But it's an, it's an acknowledgement of our need to trust God and His plan for our lives. Sin is always a lack of faith. And believing that what God has for us is better than what we believe 
is best for us. It's always a faith issue. I've been living for me. I've been trusting my plans for my life. So again, repentance isn't merely turning from an outward action, but an inward rebellion against what God has commanded for us. And maybe that raises a question in your mind, Pastor Dennis, what what is God's plan for my life? Maybe you've had that question. Maybe you have that question. Well, in a very simplified way, I'm going to give you everyone's plan for their lives, no matter your background, your education, your financial status, your vocation, or any other things that you might think. Here's God's plan for everyone's life. Follow him in obedience to what his word commands. That's God's plan for your life. The plan for your life is to know him and his word and to trust that what he has commanded is for your good and it's to be obeyed. Look, Israel, they they do know the big picture promise of God. The land will be conquered. They don't know exactly how. They don't know where they will settle when it's all said and done. They don't maybe know what's my occupation going to be when I get there. What's all the, we, we have all these future questions much like Israel might have had. But what, do they, what are they called to do? They're called to obey what is right in front of them. And here is what the Lord is commanding them to do. And they obey knowing that the big picture promise, that eternal rest that has been promised to them will come to pass. Same is true in our life. You can't know any more than the current moment that you're in. What's God's plan for my life? What am I going to be doing in a year? What happens after college? What happens after high school? I don't like the job that I'm in. Can I get something better? You have all all these things, but obey what God has for you right now and he will work out perfectly all the things for your future. That's the plan that God has for your life. So God lays out the details of this particular battle. I have this map here. Don't worry about reading the words. It might be a little hard to see, but you see, you see the red, the two red dots. The red, dots on, the red dot on your right is Jericho. And it actually it shows you where it is in relation to sea level. What does it say? 846 feet below. And the dot on the red dot on your left is AI, which is 2,700 feet above sea level. So do you see the direction they're going? It's actually a 10-mile trek from, Jere- from Jericho up to uh, AI. And there's two little purple lines. This is... It's hard. It's hard when you're dealing with history. There are um, uh, archaeological digs and things that have discovered AI, but how, what all of this looked like. But we do know that the ambush was set to the west, so it would be on this side of AI, and that's that one purple line that kind of veers off from probably the main trail. And then you have that, uh, that other purple line with that arrow that's going to come up from, from the east there, but eventually face the north of, of Ai. And, and God says, hey, look, you're going to gather 30,000 fighting men. You're going to separate. There's going to be some that go off to the ambush. And there's going to be some that are going to approach the city just like they did before. And the men of Ai will come out thinking that we have another victory, another easy battle against Jericho. And when they do come out, you are going to run. That doesn't sound like a promising plan. You're just going to flee. But when you do, and when they get away from the city, those hiding in ambush are going to come and enter the city, and they're going to seize the city. And by the time you get to verse number 8 where we ended, I'm sure that the, the troops had all kinds of questions, wondering, what, what, how is this all going to play out? But just draw your attention to the end of verse 8, the second part there. Joshua says, you shall do according to the word of the Lord. This is not Joshua's plan. This is God's plan, and they are to obey God. This is what's before them. Am I going to obey? Now, obviously, when you compare how God delivered Jericho. Remember how he delivers Jericho, march around for seven days, and how he's going to deliver Ai in this ambush. It's quite different. 
And maybe the people are even thinking, before, before they, they, they get this ambush plan, man, our sin has messed up whatever God's plan had for us in victory here. Like, they already know that we're going to attack now. There, there's, there's no surprise element. What, what is going to happen? Maybe God's not even going to provide victory and give us the land that he has promised. But here's something to note. The only reason that the ambush works is because Israel fell in sin. And AI defeated them once before. And here's what we need to understand. God's sovereign plan, the conquering of the land, cannot be stopped by any enemy or even the disobedience of God's people. In fact, God will take the sin that we commit and he will use it to bring about his purposes. And so often we, we think that when we sin, like God can't use us anymore or that we're relegated to the sidelines of the Christian life. But that thinking is completely anti-gospel because the gospel message says, hey, you will sin and you will need to repent. But through Jesus, you are forgiven and you are restored and God is now at work in you to make his purposes come to pass even through the brokenness of your sin. Now don't misunderstand here. God's plan was not that Achan would sin so that he could set an ambush. James chapter 1 and verse number 13. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God is not the source of sin. However, God will work through the sin to bring about his victory. And isn't that such an encouraging reality? No matter what you, you, you've, you've fallen into, God can redeem that and actually work through it for his good purposes. And God's sovereign plan will remain undeterred because as great as our sin can be, it's not bigger than God and his forgiveness. So God has promised us as his people an eternal rest and he's subduing every last enemy. And we might face, be facing a, a particular tree, a particular area of struggle. But when we look at the, at the forest, the whole plan, we know that God's sovereign plan is in place and he's leading his people forward in victory. It will never be deterred. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. And so we are motivated to, to obey confidently because of his sovereign plan. Second motivation to confident obedience to God is because of God's servant leader. The people are, are following God's orders as they followed God's leader. Go back to Je Joshua chapter 1. I just want to read a couple verses because I want to remind us of the words that the people spoke to Joshua and before God. They made a promise. Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 16 through 18. The people, after Joshua gives them commands, they say, and they said, and they answer Joshua, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey, obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Now notice verse number 18. Okay, because maybe you wonder, why did they do what they did to Achan and his family? Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So Joshua was a leader that people could have confidence in because he was a servant leader. This is God's servant leader leading the people. How was he a servant leader? I am glad that you asked that question. First of all, because he's a servant leader, because he spoke the Lord's commands. Verse number four. Uh, I'm looking at chapter one. Verse number four of chapter eight. Do not 
and, and he commanded them. And we already read that verse, so I won't read the rest of it. But he commanded them. Then you had that end of chapter 8, which we read uh, a couple times before. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See that I have commanded you. Now, can you imagine Joshua giving all these instructions in our, in our culture today, like in our cancel culture today? where every last word is analyzed and every little thing about your past is scrutinized, being a godly leader isn't easy. Speaking God's commands is probably not going to win you many friends. And the people very easily could have said, you know, Joshua, remember the last time we listened to your advice? 36 people were killed. Why do we want to listen to you again? Our natural tendency is to resist leadership, to resist that authority that God has placed in our lives. We are tempted to quickly be critical of leaders. And listen, that's not to say that leaders are, are, are above criticism. There are some poor leaders. As a leader myself, I know I don't always lead well. So my point isn't that leaders are up here and everyone else is down here and leaders should never be criticized. That's a super unhealthy dynamic in a church or in any other situation. But understand what I mean here. He speaks the commands of the Lord. A leader who is continually seeking to give the commands of the Lord and not his own is a servant. He is a servant of God. Joshua is not looking to make a name for himself. He's not saying, listen to me because this is my authority. He grounds everything into, this is according to the word of the Lord. And he is allowing God to use him And so a servant leader speaks God's commands without alteration. He's not changing the plans. He's saying, here's what God has told me. And we can all learn from that. But notice, secondly, he's also a servant leader because he spends the night with the people. He spends the night with with the people. Verse number 9, Joshua sends them out. They went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. In verse 13, it talks about he's there in the valley the night before the battle with the people. Joshua was one of them. He was their leader, but, but he lived among them. His position didn't go to his head and say, I'm going I'm to be off on my own. I'll let the, let the people be there by themselves. His presence with the people communicated to the people that he was there for them. He wasn't using them to achieve power. Number three, we're just touching on a few things here. Number three, he puts himself in harm's way. Verse number five, did you notice when we read that verse where he puts himself? And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. So he's, he's right there on the front lines and, and we shall flee before them. So he's going to be part of the retreating party. He doesn't put himself in the ambush group. Like let that, That's where I would prefer. Like Let everybody else chase that group. I'm going to put myself in the ambush group. No, he puts himself there on the front lines and let the enemy chase me. I'll, I'll put myself on the line. I'll demonstrate that I trust God's plan. This is the heart of a servant leader, leading from the front. Now listen, we can glean all kinds of leadership applications from Joshua. And we can ask ourselves, am I a servant leader? As a pastor, I definitely can't help but ask these questions of of myself. But understand, that's not the main application for us. Am I a leader like Joshua? Because as great of a leader as Joshua was, he is not a perfect leader. You're going to get to chapter 9. He's got blind spots. He doesn't consult the Lord about the Gibeonites. Joshua, though, is a type of Christ. We, Adam has talked about this. I have talked about this all throughout the series of Joshua. Joshua is pointing us to a greater leader who is to come for the people. Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus is the greatest servant leader. Jesus lived life with his people. He became like us. Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And while on earth, he taught his father's teachings. 
You remember these words from John chapter 7 and verse 16. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. And of course, we know he puts himself in harm's way. Here's these words from Mark chapter 10 and verses 42 to 45. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And they exercise, uh, sorry, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's talking about the, the leaders of the world. But it shall not be among you, he tells his disciples. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has led the battle charge against the enemy by going to the cross. That's what a servant leader does. And what greater motivation than to follow God's servant leader? Fully trusting in the plan of God. Because if the leader is trusting and obeying, then, then I can trust and obey. The first motivation to confident obedience to God is because of God's sovereign plan. The second one we saw was the servant, God's servant leader. And now the third motivation, God's severe judgment. You know, Israel has witnessed the judgment of God first at the battle of Jericho. Then they witnessed Achan and the judgment that God brought about on Achan and his family, and now they witness it again at Ai. Boy, just a simple takeaway. God will not allow sin to go unpunished. And here it's the sin of Ai. Disobedience leads to judgment. Notice verse number 26. In verse number 26, Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. So the inhabitants of Ai were devoted to destruction. It's the same language used in chapter 7 and verse number 12, talking about the people of Israel after Achan had sinned. They were devoted to destruction. Again, let's think about the whole context. And I would encourage you, you know, this week, Read through Joshua 1 through 8, all in, all in one sitting. It's really not that long, but it paints the full picture and it helps us to understand all that's taking place, that this, this is not just a story that lets us pull this out and draw some application, but there's, there's all these things that are unfolding. So think about the whole context. You have chapter 6 and chapter 8. We have two Gentile cities that are totally destroyed, Jericho and Ai, Then you have Achan, an Israelite, who suffers the same fate along with his family. They are totally destroyed. But, you remember the one family that wasn't totally destroyed in all of this? You have Rahab, the prostitute. A Gentile who is saved because of her faith. What is being conveyed to us? What is being conveyed to God's people? God's judgment is severe on those who do not follow and obey him. But it's not about ethnicity. It's about faith and obedience. There were Israelites that came under judgment. There were Gentiles that were spared because of faith and obedience. And so to disobey will lead to destruction no matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. And it's total destruction. Notice verses 28 and 29. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap of ruins. Sorry, made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. So Ai is a heap of ruins. The king of Ai is hanged. They take him down at sunset. They bury him. Why do we need to know that? And what is that here for? Well, keep your finger in Joshua and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter number 21, page number 164. 
Deuteronomy 21, I want to read verses 22 and 23 for us. And you'll see why Joshua commanded the people to do what he did to the king of Ai. The king of Ai. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him, in the, same, bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God, and you shall not defile your land that the Lord, has, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So Joshua doesn't just decide, hey, I think, I think it's time to take the body down. Like, that's a good idea. I'm coming up with this idea to just take the body down. No, Joshua is actually leading God's people to obey God in all that he commands. They weren't just obeying his battle plans for the battle of Ai. They were intent on obeying every command of God, going all the way back to the law in Deuteronomy. They were serious about their repentance and obedience. And how many times in our lives do we say, God, I'll obey you over here, but not over here. I'll obey that command because I see the benefits of it, but I'm not going to obey in that command because maybe I just don't see the point. Is that really a heart of obedience? And you know yourself before the Lord. Again, if you're just picking and choosing when and where you'll obey God, you are setting yourself up for severe judgment. It's not picking and choosing. Either I obey God in all things or I don't. Isaiah the prophet gives us these words about how God will judge wickedness. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and for the wicked and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will also put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and pompous pride of the ruthless. As sinful people, that doesn't sound too great. Is there, is there any hope? Well, Isaiah the prophet gives us these words of hope. About 40 chapters later, Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, this is talking about Jesus, our Messiah, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's judgment of sin is severe, and the only way of escape is to look to Jesus to believe that he has taken our sin, taken our judgment. So friend, can I just encourage you, look to him and be saved. Look to him and know that your sin can be forgiven and that God's judgment has already been taken for you. Since Avalon gave me the freedom to spend a little more time, there is an eternal aspect of God's judgment that we, we think about. We think of hell, we think about eternal death, and that forever judgment of God. Rightfully so. But before we move on from this point of God, about God's severe judgment, I just want to point out something else. Because we see the finality of AI's judgment. They were totally destroyed, and all the people were devoted to destruction, and the king was, was hanged on the tree. Like, that destruction was permanent. But God's judgment on Ai was already at work several verses before we read about their finished judgment. Because you see God withdrawing his hand of grace, common grace to the people of Ai. In, 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 in theological terms, you have what is called common grace and special grace or saving grace. Common grace is God's grace to the world, the wicked and the righteous. Because there are wicked people that walk around, and, and Asaph talks about this in Psalm 73. Are the wicked going to prosper forever? And of course, the answer was no, because Asaph says, then I remembered their end. Their end will be destruction. But, but God has a common grace to people 
that is different from his special grace, saving grace that comes through Jesus Christ. But you start to see his common grace, his common hand of grace being withdrawn from the people of Ai. And when, when God's hand of common grace is withdrawn, destruction is at the doorstep. Notice verse number 14. So, so the, the, the main uh, army goes up 10 miles. They're marching up. So Ai sees this coming for miles. And they're preparing for battle. And it says, verse 14, and as soon as Ai, uh, the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Jump down to verse 17. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel. So apparently Bethel has joined in this battle, which is the neighboring city to Ai. But not a man was left who did not go out after Israel. And notice that last phrase. They left the city open and pursued Israel. So all the soldiers leave the city of Ai. Now, I have never fought in a war. I've never been in the military. But this is like capture the flag 101 of what not to do. If you're trying to capture the other person's flag, you send troops to get that flag, teammates, but you don't leave your flag unattended. Because the enemy's trying to get yours, too. And, and it, does, it doesn't make any sense except that God's hand of common grace is being removed from Ai and the ball of judgment is already in motion until it reaches its end in verse 29. And I think this is where, I'm just going to, cultural application, I think this is where our culture is at. You read Romans chapter 1, and it talks about God's wrath being poured out on the wicked, on the ungodly. And three times in Romans 1, it says this, God gives the wicked up. It says he gives the wicked up to the lust of their hearts, to the dishonorable passions, and to a debased mind. In other words, to do what's like insane. It doesn't make sense. And so sometimes I hear people say, well, at some point God's going to judge our nation. But I think the ball of judgment is already in motion. It's already moving. And at some point, it's going to reach its end. We don't know exactly when. It's in God's timing. And we are never out of God's uh, grace if we repent, if we turn from our sin. But the path we're on as a nation, no matter who gets elected in November, is leading to destruction. You know, at the beginning, I quoted Jonathan Edwards saying that our obedience should be like a child's obedience to a loving father. That, that's our ultimate motivation. But Jonathan Edwards was also the preacher who preached the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So fear of judgment does have some influence in our obedience knowing that God's judgment for sin is severe and that should motivate us that those who don't obey his word will come under judgment, but those who practice a faith-filled obedience will be spared from judgment. We need to move on to point number four here. And that is the final motivation to confident obedience to God is because of God's sure victory. Okay, so if one side of the coin is severe judgment for obedience, the other side of the coin is that victory has been given for the people of Israel. And we're at a point in the story now where God's promised victory has been fulfilled. Israel has been given the victory. That tree of Ai that's in front of them has been conquered. They've won the battle. Now, conquering Ai gave Israel access to the heart of Canaan. So I have this different type of map here. And somebody said we should get pointers uh, with red, you know, the red pointers. But uh, these screens, they don't let that red show up, okay? So right above that blue in the middle is 
the Dead Sea, and right above that is Jericho, and just to the east of that is Ai, okay? And you see the whole, I use this map, and I know you can't read all the names, but you see the whole land of Israel. Ready? Now you can't miss that red bouncing line. Do you see what, in the big picture, what's happening? They're dividing Israel in half, the land of Canaan, and in the, in the chapters to come, they're going to start uh, northern and southern conquest. So they're, they're cutting the land in half. It's a divide and conquer strategy to conquer this land. It's not by accident that they come into Jericho. And it's not by accident that they capture Ai next. And they're eventually going to make their way up to Shechem. But the victory at Ai what we need to see from this, this sure victory, it's going to motivate them to even greater obedience in more difficult battles to come. If you think taking on one king and his army is hard, wait till you get to uh, just in chapter 10 when they have to take on five kings and their armies. It's going to be a more difficult battle. But they know that God has delivered on his victory here at Ai. He's delivered on his victory here at Jericho. And it it can motivate them to a more obedience to God. You know, can I draw your attention to verses 18 and and verse 26 for a moment. Verse number 18. The Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. Jump down to verse number 26. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Here's what I want you to notice. God commands Joshua the leader to do something as a sign for the people. What was it? Stretch out the javelin or some translations say sword that is in your hand. Okay, that's a sign. Well, let's go back to Exodus chapter number 17. And let's take a look at what it says there. Exodus chapter 17. This is a significant part in understanding the the context of what God is doing to this new generation and what God is doing for a new leader. Page number 59, Exodus 17. And see if you see the similarity. Then, uh, verse number 8. Exodus 17, verse number 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So, Joshua, so Moses said to Joshua, Joshua is the understudy at this point, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. And he does this, I'm not going to keep reading, but he does this until Israel has the victory. Moses holds up his staff, and it's a sign to the people that God is going to deliver his victory. You come to Joshua chapter 8, and Joshua holds up the javelin as a sign to the people that God will give the victory And God, what is God doing for Joshua? He's demonstrating to both Joshua and the people that Joshua is still the chosen leader for God's people, even though the people fall into sin. He's still God's leader. And look, we've compared Moses and Joshua throughout this this series, the Passover and Rahab, how Rahab was passed over, the Red Sea crossing and the Jordan crossing. Um, Moses sends out 12 spies, Joshua sends out two spies into the land. You have all these similarities. And here we have another indication that this is a new exodus for the people of God. These stories just overlap one another. It's a reset forward for this new generation. And here, as it says, Joshua did not draw back his hand until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction I can't help but think again of the greater Joshua who went to the cross, not with a javelin, but willingly stretched out both of his hands until he devoted all of his enemies to destruction. 
And then he proclaimed, it is finished. And it is that finished work of Jesus that has secured for us a sure blessing. God's promised victory over sin and death has come to pass. And those who look to Jesus with his outstretched arms on the cross are free from sin and can say no to the sinful temptations that we face day after day. That there is victory in the day-to-day battle. Church, we know the sovereign plan of God for his people. He's leading us to a heavenly land. We're not waiting for this earthly land that, that, that Israel was waiting for. There's a greater land that is to come. We're waiting for this eternal rest. And all along the way, we have these trees, these battles. And I think for many of us, there are many trees of victory that would encourage us that God has given us victory over the enemy. He has given us victory over sin. You've seen this in certain areas of your life. And just as Israel looked to Joshua's outstretched hand to show that the victory was theirs, we look to the cross to show that the victory is ours. And let that motivate you to confidently obey God in the next battle and then the battle after that. Obedience can only happen when repentance has taken place. Only a heart that has been cleansed and united with God can follow Him in obedience because obedience is both a matter of the heart, the inside, and the actions. Those two things go together. They must line up. But true repentance motivates us to a confident obedience to God in all that he commands because of God's sovereign plan, that big picture. He will bring his people to the land of rest because of God's servant leader. Jesus has led the battle, has fought the fight for us. We're motivated because of the severe judgment that those who don't obey will come into judgment And then the sure victory in the day-to-day battles. Obedience to God will lead to victory in your life today and for all of eternity. Let's pray.